Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, shalom. Welcome and thank you all for being here. Great to see you all. Um, excited to uh, engage in this learning with you today. We are here with Eliyahu Friedman, who is an independent scholar and former PhD student at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, where he studied Judeo-Arabic and is currently a freelance correspondent for Al Jazeera English and the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, JTA. Born and raised in Toronto, Canada, he has lived in, in Jaffa, Israel for four years since making Aliyah, while not working while not working on research or writing research, Eliyahu is an avid practitioner of mindfulness meditation and enjoys playing guitar and watching sunsets at the beach. We um, are going to be learning from him today on Jewish diversity in medieval Jewish Babylonia beyond Rabbinites and Karaites. So welcome, Eliyahu. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you very much, Rav Shmuley. It was a highlight of my time at Yeshiva Chovavei Torah to visit you and Phoenix, and it's an honor to teach uh, for the first time at the Valley Beit Midrash. So the research uh, for today was completed in my time as a PhD student at Hebrew University. So I'd like to thank uh, my advisors, Professor Robert Brody and Miriam Goldstein, and also Eve Krakowski at Princeton for a seminar that she taught on early charism during COVID, where a lot of the main ideas from this class were born. So to sum up my, the, the class today, I will argue that there are two ways, essentially, of thinking about medieval Jewish Babylonia. The first way I will nickname the traditional Jewish historiographical approach, which is based in the epistle of Rav Shriragon. According to this model, essentially one community of Jews, the rabbinic community, upheld traditional Judaism as embodied in the Babylonian Talmud, only to be confronted by an uprised group of Karaites led by Anan. And of course, the Rabbinites win this battle between the two communities. And in this way, the early medieval period is viewed as a time of conservation and continuity between the Talmudic period and later medieval Judaism. The second model that I will advocate for and develop in this lecture is that the early medieval period is a time of great creativity, innovation, and diversity. The Jewish community may not be neatly divided into two communities of Karaites and Rabbinites, but rather there is great diversity amongst Rabbinite, non-Rabbinite, Karaite, and other communities of Jews. In light of this diversity, I will argue uh, that our task as Jews and scholars is to study and appreciate the full spectrum of surviving texts of this period, rather than drawing sharp dichotomies that divide these texts and their personalities into one of two camps. The real question in this period and perhaps today is were you someone with an open mind committed to study, to learning, philosophy, religious growth, or someone who neglected these practices? Okay, so let us now enter the city of Baghdad. So the Jewish presence in Babylonia is very ancient. Um, from the time of the Hebrew Bible, the Garden of Eden, uh, the birthplace of the prophet Abraham, Ezekiel the prophet, uh, from the times of the Ten Lost Tribes, and so on and so forth. 
of course, uh, the Babylonian Talmud, uh, the period before the, the one in discussion today, the early medieval period, is sometimes nicknamed the Dark Ages of Jewish Studies. And this is because between the completion of the Talmud and the period that we're studying, we have very few texts to understand what was going on. However, in the early medieval period, there's an explosion of, of written texts that have survived. And uh, this includes the Iraqi Gaonic literature written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Arabic, and the non-Gaonic, or sometimes people refer to as Karaitic literature, which is written in Hebrew, Arabic, and we even have some Judeo-Persian. It's important to note at the start of the study that there are some, uh, there are many more gaps in the data than knowledge, and primarily the voices that are missing include women and children. So we really need to consider the biases of our authors at the start of this investigation. So I'll say a few words about Baghdad because I want to really contextualize today's learning. Uh, so the city of Baghdad was founded in 762 and was a milestone in the history of urban design, as you can see in this picture. It's a trade-friendly position on the Tigris River close to the Euphrates made it what was described as the crossroads of the universe, and it was the capital of the Dar al-Islam, the center of the Islamic world, which was a place home to scientists, astronomers, poets, mathematicians, uh, legal scholars, and philosophers. And in this way, Baghdad became the nucleus of a massive empire stretching from Spain to India. And for our purposes, Baghdad is also very close to the Talmudic yeshivot of Sura and Pompadita, and also to the headquarters of the Church of the East. And the, the yeshivas, uh, by the time of our study, by the time of Sa'adia Gaon, would end up moving to Baghdad. And uh, it's mostly from Baghdad that we have texts that survived this period. Uh, and that's probably related to the fact that they were in the center of the empire, the Islamic emperor at that time. And these Jewish ideas managed to become influential and spread uh, east and west. So, of course, we are talking about the Islamic empire. And what kind of Islamic empire are the Jews living in? The scholar Joel Kramer nicknamed it uh, humanism in the Renaissance of Islam. Um, so this is a time of cultural symbiosis between religious groups. And this is a term coined by the scholar Shlomo Goitain in describing the various forms of cross-communal interaction amongst the members of different religious groups. And the Geniza texts give us evidence that Jews, Christians, and Muslims lived in very close proximity, were business partners, and even joined, even owned houses jointly. So the Renaissance of Islam refers to a kind of philosophical belief and cultural flowering within the Islamic civilization in which the values of philosophical humanism that embraced the scientific and philosophical heritage of antiquity were seen as cultural ideals. Several other of the key features of this world, which are very central to our understanding of the Jewish community, include the the value of individualism and personal expression. And the way that this manifests in Islam is that there were there were many um, Islamic legal scholars with great diversity that eventually consolidated into four main schools. 
you can see here the four schools of uh, Sunni Islam, at least. And if we look into these schools closely, we'll find that many of the debates that are in engaged in dividing the various schools are the same debates occurring in the Jewish community. And above and beyond the school that a person might belong to was this idea of philosophy that transcended loyalties and united people based on the common pursuit and love of wisdom. One of the main places where philosophy and learning took place were scholarly circles called majalis, or majlis in the singular. And these were interchangeable schools consisting of students, colleagues, friends, and visitors uh, beyond religious communities in some instances. And this explains why Jews, Muslims, and Christians would learn together, or Jews of different ideological backgrounds would also uh, study together, uh, based on their shared commitment to reason and uh, mutual interest in, in dialogue. Another feature of this Islamic world is secularism. And so without completely getting rid of a religion as something valid and binding, we see more philosophers and scientists who view religion with less authority as compared to their own learning, their, uh, their own value of reason. So we will step back from Muslim community and, and approach the Jewish community. So in the Jewish community, I would argue that the main debate, which is the same debate occurring in the broader um, religious environment, is between reason and tradition. And in Arabic, this is aql versus naql, uh, which, which rhymes. And I would define the rabbinic community as creativity within boundaries. And the most famous rabbinite or rabbinic Jew from this period is probably Sa'adia Gaon. And Sa'adia Gaon, who is the foremost uh, medieval spiritual leader, uh, was born in Egypt. And so he's very much an outsider to this uh, world of Baghdad, um, but his legacy is very enduring. So perhaps the, the most important uh, innovation that Sa'adia brings to the Jewish community is his, uh, his, his style of writing in the Arabic language. Um, so the first thing about, uh, the first work that Sa'adia uh, composes is Sefer Ha'agron, which is a dictionary intended to guide poets, Hebrew poets, to produce uh, rhymes and acrostics. And this is related to the strong influence of Arabic poetry and Sadia's desire for Jews to have an equally um, prestigious and beautiful style of poetry. The second and perhaps most uh, a meaningful contribution of Rav Sadia Gaon is his translation of the Torah, which is called the Tafsir. Now, the Tafsir comes from the same uh, verb in Hebrew of perush, of uh, which we understand as commentary. And uh, this has to do with a belief that the Hebrew Bible is essentially inimitable and that the translator cannot imitate the Hebrew text in Hebrew. Um, but can decode it and uh, present it in a new cultural context. And uh, what's interesting, another interesting note about um, the relationship between the Torah and the Quran is, is Sadia in, in Arabic 
will refer to the Jewish scriptures as Al-Quran, uh, as the Quran. And this shows just to what extent the Arabic and Islamic influence had on the Jewish community at the time. Um, Saadia, as a philosopher, um, was very indebted to the Islamic school of the Mu'atazilite, um, otherwise known as a people of monotheism and justice, uh, which gives a lot of what they were uh, committed to philosophically. Um, there are five basic tenets in the Mu'atazilite creed, and uh, the the most important uh, philosophical work of Saadia, a book of beliefs and opinions, is uh, really a way of describing Judaism according to this Islamic philosophical school that he was a part of the the Mu'atazilite. So the five um, the five tenets are monotheism, justice and unity, the inevitability of God's promises, uh, i.e. that God keeps his word with these promises, um, the commandment to do what's right, and the prohibition of, of doing wrong. And you can see these are very general, and it's um, it's possible to see how they don't necessarily bind one to an Islamic or Jewish creed. The second major group are the non-Rabbinites. This group I would describe as uh, the first group I described the Rabbinites is creativity uh, within boundaries. And you see that very much in Rav Saadia Gaon. There are many revolutionary um, elements of his writings and his ideas. Um, but there's also a heavy weight played by tradition, and there are uh, certain limits to what extent he is willing to innovate within Judaism. And the main difference, I would argue, between the rabbinite community and the non-rabbinite communities is, uh, is the number of boundaries uh, to the extent to which innovation is accepted. And this is really encapsulated by a motto attributed to Anan. Uh, Anan was uh, was born in the middle of the 8th century in Baghdad, and he is often viewed as the, the father of the Karaite movement. Uh, it's really a bit more complex than that, uh, but for the purposes of today's learning, it's enough to know that uh, Anan is credited with this more intellectually free movement within the Jewish community. And his motto is remembered as search scripture well, and do not rely on my opinion. What's important to note about this approach towards Judaism, as you see in the picture on the slide of a bunch of spices, is that uh, once creativity is so valued, it's hard to form a sense of identity within the school. And uh, Kirkasani who is the 10th century author that I was writing my dissertation on, really um, captures well the problems that the non-Rabbinites have in forming community because of their commitment to independence, as I mentioned, uh, a core value of the Islamic humanist society that they were living in. An imaginary debate in Kirkasani um, before I do that, I'll just say a little bit more about Kirkasani because uh, 
while he's not as well known as Saadia Gaon, the two very much have a lot in common as these kinds of Renaissance thinkers whose works touch on many areas of study, of science and philosophy. And uh, you could see on the right, a list of his works. There's commentaries on the book of Genesis. It's a very philosophical commentary, um, <clears throat> which considers how the world was created through the book of Genesis. The second on the list, the book of Job, is really more of an essay on the problem of evil, <clears throat> as is the book of Ecclesiastes, really an opportunity to discuss wisdom. A lot of these books and topics are also written on by Sajjagaon, and the two uh, lived in the same time. Um, <clears throat> Kirkasani wrote many responses to Sa'adiagaon, but unfortunately, we don't have any um, we don't have any surviving texts in which uh, Sadia Gaon responded to Kirkasani. If you see in the fourth on the list here, Kirkasani authored a refutation of Muhammad's claim to prophecy, which speaks to the intellectual climate in which uh, Jews like Kirkasani felt uh, secure enough to write such a provocative work. <clears throat> so I'll now share an, ima an, uh, an imaginary dialogue between a rabbinite and a Karaite that uh, Kirkasani um, writes. So the rabbinite says that, I do not recognize Anan since he is a heretic and is associated with the Gentiles. And this claim is arguing that uh, Anan borrowed or copied some of his uh, views from Islam. The rabbinite says, I recognize only the school of Hillel and the school of Shammite, who are the foundation and were close to prophets and received and passed on traditions from the prophets. So this is really an exaggerated version of the argument that I opened up to Jew the presentation of the Jewish community with of the, of the fight between reason and tradition. So the rabbinite says that Anan is a heretic, and Hillel and Shammai, the, the two main schools of the Mishnah, are equivalent to prophecy, and, uh, and therefore tradition wins. While the Karaite responds, duties must be elicited, duties meaning commandments, the mitzvot, by study and investigation. That which investigation imposes, that to which study leads, must be adopted whether it be the opinion of the Rabbinites or Anan or yet others. What is more, if scholars or researchers should arrive at a conclusion which has never been put before, that is to be adopted insofar as it not be impugned and contain no faults. Going back to how I described the non-Rabbinite community as creativity with fewer boundaries, the idea is that when we are striving for religious truth, we must take all the previous opinions, and this is Kirkasani's method, <clears throat> we take all the previous opinions, whether they be from the Rabbinites, or from Anan, or from other more obscure figures, like uh, Mishaway al-Akbari, <clears throat> Binyamin al-Nahawandi, then we look at their proofs, and the sources upon which they defend their view, then we argue, and if there are problems with their view, we refute them. And then we arrive at our conclusion, which is temporary. And, you know, barring objections and potential errors in our own reasoning. And then we repeat this process. 
Now I want to ask a question to the group. Um, I'm curious, where where does this idea come from? What I just referred to is the Kirkasani method of citing, beginning a legal debate by citing all the earlier views, presenting their opinions, refu refuting each one, and then arriving at one's conclusion. So if anybody wants to pop in the chat. Socrates. Okay, Socrates, good. So I'm not sure exactly which of the Greek philosophical schools it comes from, but it definitely comes from Rav Sa'ad Yaga'on. It's interesting that um, Kirkasani, who in, in many ways is understood as the chief rival of Sa'ad Yaga'on, really is borrowing uh, Sa'adia's method. And in turn, Sa'adia's method, uh, I would argue, is a philosophical norm with no specific Jewish ancestry, and we could find Muslim scholars of the same period who employ the exact same method. Uh, one of these is Tabari, um, who it's been described, who would quote his sources and um, exercise his independent judgment. <clears throat> so this is really um, a pillar of my thesis for tonight, that we can't think of merely two communities, uh, because very much in both the Rabbinite and the quote-unquote Karaite community, the value of independent judgment, uh, what I called creativity, is, is very strong. And this uh, can be shown of um, when we consider Rav Sa'ad Yaga'on's critics were not only members of the Karaite community, but like uh, Kirgasani, but even within the rabbinic community in Babylonia, uh, Sadia Gaon received uh, fierce criticism, not only because he was an outsider, uh, not only because his views were revolutionary um, in some ways, uh, but also because the, the exact same method <clears throat> was being employed beyond the, the Jewish community. This is what people uh, did if they were intellectuals living in this environment. Um, what's very important and interesting, I believe, is that Kirgasani <clears throat> defends this um, this method that the religious truth, the mitzvot, must be arrived at by study investigation by citing the precedent of the Sifra. And uh, it may be true, historically speaking, that in the Tanaitic period, there was a school that uh, saw um independent study of scripture as the correct approach the school of rabbi akiva and uh, this is something for uh, the academics to decide i think it's a plausible argument um whereas the more traditional approach i.e that the torah came from sinai may not have been a universal held belief in the even the early tanaitic period the second main precedent for kirgisani is anan uh, Anan made his own version of the hermeneutic principles that are found at the beginning of the Sifra. And you can really view Kirkasani as trying to rein in some of Anan's reforms. Anan was uh, very much willing to change a lot of Jewish practice based upon his own hermeneutical principles, his own judgment. And Kirkasani is uh, really trying to bring some of these views, I would say, closer to the, the masses. Um, 
There are three main principles of Kirkasani's uh, legal book that I was studying, and they are that the law depends on the text, the consensus of the Jewish people, and analogy. These are things that would not be so controversial within the Rabbinite and Karak community, with the exception of analogy. And uh, if we have time, maybe we'll talk about what was so controversial about analogy. And it's also true that within the Islamic legal schools, the, the extent to which analogy is a legitimate tool in legal analysis is also very controversial. Um, but I thought it would be more interesting to look at two examples to see how this plays out. And uh, the examples both have to do with the realm of purity law. And uh, I chose this because it's what I'm currently working on a paper on. And also because uh, those of us who have studied the Rabbinite Karai controversy uh, may be used to debates over the new moon or the calendar, the Sabbath. Um, we probably haven't encountered some of the views on impurity. And uh, these are very central to Jewish life. Um, so the first topic is corpse impurity. And so I, I, I began by noting that the three principles are text. The first principle is the text. So the way this plays out is that the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, has many texts about the binding nature of corpse impurity. So this is something that any textualist uh, needs to deal with. In the Islamic environment, the corpse of a Muslim is impure and anything that it's touched becomes impure. So in the environment that they're living in, corpse impurity is uh, is practiced. Anan makes a very radical argument uh, that corpse impurity was canceled uh, during the exile, i.e. it only applies in the land of Israel. And he makes this argument uh, with Xerah Shavah, which is essentially taking two verses, a common word in each verse, and uh, finding a common principle between the two verses. Uh, I didn't bring these in the presentation. Um, this argument faces a lot of resistance, and Kirkasani discusses other uh, Jewish communities, other Karaite communities uh, who opposed Anan's cancellation of corpse impurity. And uh, within the Karaite community, I, I note that the practice of corpse impurity uh, in the diaspora or in the land of Israel um, uh, won out. So this is a good example where Anan's, um, his, his, um, approach or his conclusion was rejected. And uh, you can see I include in the slide a manual of uh, ritual impurity from the modern Karaite community. This is the community based in uh, in the Bay Area. And uh, you can you can see how the details of corpse impurity would play out. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And so this is a good example where Kirkasani's uh, main legal principle of following the text uh, is uh, practiced. There, there's no, if you read the Torah, there's no clear indication that corpse impurity would ever stop being relevant. However, if you're familiar with the rules, the, the, one of the intermediary processes by which 
a corpse impure person becomes pure is through the sprinkling sprinkling of the ashes of the manida, this uh, special substance that's made by burning the red heifer. And uh, and so some in the Ananite camp and in the Rabbinite camp will argue against those Karaites who follow corpse impurity that without this special manida, this combination, there can no be no way to become pure and therefore the corpse impurity is canceled. So this is an interesting example um, where Kirgasani will rely on a, a philosophical argument in order to defend the, the practice of purification of corpse impurity in spite of the Manida. And to summarize a very long argument, it's basically by virtue of God's justice, if we can become impure, and we know we can become impure uh, by touching a corpse, because that's what it says in the Torah. If we become, if we can become impure, then there must be a way to become pure. So God wouldn't allow it to be that we would just always be impure. And this is interesting because the Rabbinite view, the predominant view, is that after the temple's destruction, there is no real impurity. And this this may be what we're most used to, um, that there is no concern upon going to a cemetery or being exposed to a corpse in terms of a ritual purity requirement. Uh, but the downside of this in a way, theologically, is that either you say, when we say that there's no real impurity, there are two ways we can understand this. One is that there's no impurity or purity. And if we accept that, <clears throat> then we basically can't practice huge sections of biblical law. It also forces difficult questions about um, especially the Nida practice for rabbinic Jews of menstrual purity. Um, is it real or not? Uh, the second way of understanding this teaching is that everyone is permanently impure with corpse impurity, and that's also <clears throat> not such a great place to be. And um, a corollary of that is the next case study of prayer and holiness. And uh, <clears throat> the reason why these are related is because um, prayer in a state of purity is a very important value in Islam. And uh, we can think of this colloquially with the, the ablutions that Muslims do before prayer. There are other related laws that go as far back as the Quran regarding the sanctity of the Quranic book, which can only be touched by a pure person. And so the subject we just mentioned, the most severe form of purity, uh, corpse impurity, has real consequences for Jewish practice and theology. And one of these areas is prayer. And um, so we can start by considering Anan. Anan was so concerned about the obligation to pray in a pure place. He viewed prayer equivalent to a sacrifice, a biblical sacri uh, a sacrifice. And this is based in none other than King David, who has in the book of Psalms, the verse, Tikon filati may my prayer be like the incense offering. And so Anand takes this very seriously. 
that prayer must be done alone uh, without any impure person. And essentially, you need to make an altar that is uh, sanctified and pray there. Uh, so this is a very strict uh, view. Kirkasani uh, softens this view a lot. Um, one needs to pray in a pure place and in a state of purity. The final um, take on this issue in the Arabonite community is they agree uh, that um, one must be pure before prayer, uh, but the standard is a lot lower. Uh, so, for example, hand washing could um, could constitute an appropriate purification. And so we could see in this case that uh, all three of them, of the schools, are, I would suggest, are, are mutually impacted by the cultural norm of praying in a state of purity, but they come up with uh, very different solutions um, based in their uh, wider understanding of uh, the, the different authority of Jewish sources. I would now like to open up for questions. I hope that the presentation was clear and uh, hopefully through the question and answer, I'll be able to clarify some of the points that I was less successful in the first 40 minutes. Thank you so much, Eliyahu. Yes, we would love to uh, open it up to questions or comments. Um, if anyone would like to speak, please feel free to raise your hands and then we can call on you to unmute um, or you can always use the chat. Uh, Jean? I, um, uh, I found this completely fascinating. Thank you. Um, would it be a reasonable conclusion that this interpretation emphasizes that there is, there can be no such thing as fundamental uh, Judaism, that uh, all has been sieved through um, interpretation, cultural milieu, and it, uh, and what we have today, as we had yesterday, as we had the day before, are um, uh, various ways of of making the commandments uh, work. Would that be would that be fair or would that be going too far? Uh, it's a great question. I have the feeling when I'm studying these texts from the medieval Islamic period that um, one feels like an alien in a, in a sense that uh, I don't recognize this world. Um, perhaps you're familiar with the Talmudic legend of Moses entering the study hall of Rabbi Akiva and, uh, and not understanding what's going on. Uh, so I, I think that story um, speaks to this tension that uh, the rabbis are aware of in this Talmudic legend, that how could it be that Moses doesn't recognize the religion? And uh, it's true that every generation has novel questions and issues that were never even relevant uh, prior. Um, so, if you think about if you think about where I live in the state of Israel, these questions about Judaism and the state are completely novel due to the period that we live in. So, I think it is fair to say that you can't speak about modern Judaism in the context of Zionism, at least. Um, as being continuous with 
earlier iterations of Judaism, just because there's so much uh, that's influenced by what's new in in the in the context. And and yes, I would say that this slice of Jewish history, the Islamic Renaissance the 10th century that is very fascinating is in a way fascinating because of how unique and uh, different it is from other periods. Um, so I would agree that you could talk about, this is a debate that a lot of the scholars talk about Judaisms in the plural. Uh, and I'm inclined to agree with the view that you can't really think of these as uh, continuous Although perhaps um, there are certainly reasonable arguments in the other direction as well. Thank you. Hi, Aglaya. Hi. All right. So I'm going to go a little bit, um, you know, in the opposite direction. Um, one of the things that you were talking about is um, the uh, boundaries um, around creativity. Now, just speaking from, you know, the historian perspective, the, you know, my history professor perspective, um, Creativity without boundaries sometimes also leads to um, a lot of backlash and a lot of um, uh, very strict interpretations. It can be very, very word for word interpretations of whatever, including religious texts and everything, um, just in general, just you know, speaking historically. So I don't know, like, um, if you want to speak to okay, whether or not boundaries in this case, in this case, the um, Karaites versus the Rabbinites, whether or not the boundaries actually, you know, did anything to, when it comes to strict interpretations, really, really strict. I don't know if I'm making sense. There's certainly, um, it's true that this, it's uh, funny that in, in according to Kirgasani, the students of Anan are even more stubborn in following their teacher uh, then the Rabbinites are in following their teachers. And so the guy who came up with the idea of being creative and independent ended up birthing a movement of followers who are even more fundamentalist. And that might have to do with the fact that they were um, attacked by the Rabbinites in a way. So they became more defensive uh, and they were a smaller community. So maybe there has something to do with small communities that become fundamentalist. Uh, I don't think it's just in Judaism that a community that begins very revolutionary very quickly becomes the opposite. Um, in terms of this whole issue of strict, um, I definitely think one of the interesting questions when studying the Karaites who are in a way more textualist like I said, the first of the three principles is what does the text say, uh, is what happens when the text says something that's very strict. And uh, the Torah is full of examples where a textualist reading, perhaps the most famous or one of the famous ones is an eye for an eye. Um, and uh, and so what the Karaites do, I think you can make rules, is what the Karaites do is they'll want to adopt the strict interpretation, but they'll find a kind of loophole. Uh, so in the case of an eye for an eye, I'll say, okay, so it's an eye for an eye, but uh, this is only with the Jewish court, the kind of court that the Bible describes. And uh, we know that we don't have this kind of court. 
so we can't enforce the biblical punishments. Um, another example of that is the Torah is full of many death penalty punishments, uh, especially according to the Karite reading, where the karet punishments, the ones that are being cut off, where karet is understood as uh, being cut off, i.e. being executed. And this, if you look into it, is a, is a reasonable interpretation of, of that verb. And, uh, and they'll say, similarly, the court is the only authorized body to um, implement the death penalty. And so we'll say that all these things are punishable by death, but we have no way of implementation. And there are other examples where the Karaites are pushed into a corner, you could say, by their um, strict reading of the text, and uh, they live with it. Um, for example, the Torah says in what's understood to be referring to Shabbat, that a person shall not leave their place. This is understood in rabbinic law as the the idea of a Shabbat boundary, that there's a certain distance by which a person shouldn't travel on Shabbat. Um, and this has to do with the the camp in the desert that Israel were in this camp like you can imagine in this circle here and the idea was you can't leave the camp on the Sabbath but uh, some of the Karaites understood you shall not leave your place to be you should literally stay in one place and not move unless you need to uh, go to the bathroom or or go and pray so I hope that answered some of your question at least part right. I understood okay uh, I'll read this uh, latest question that came in. It says, since nearly a millennia had passed since the destruction of the temple, would not Jews have not only been forced to adapt into new cultures, but also learn to flourish in these cultures, whether it was in, in Ottoman, Turkey, Spanish and Muslim Spain, Portugal, or the 1500 years of the Babylonian expulsion, the Jews of the diaspora learned how to adjust Judaism into both an introvert and extrovert culture, depending on who they lived amongst. I would agree with this. Yes. Um, I think there are some examples of communities that more retreated into themselves, like the Dead Sea sect. Um, those communities uh, didn't survive. I'm also happy to talk about my freelance journalism in Israel. I don't know if this is a, a place for this at the Valley Beit Midrash, but if anyone's curious about how I got into writing, I'd be happy to answer questions of that nature. How did you get into writing? Great. So um, the problem with uh, the study of Kirkasani in academia is that nobody really studies this. Um, we're still waiting for someone to do their PhD on the topic of today. I was maybe going to be the first to do it, um, but it was difficult having advisors who could do who could who could advise this um, because the the Karaite legal tradition that I was talking about is uh, not normative um, in Jewish culture today. You know, there are only a small number of Karaites. And uh, and largely for that reason, I think these texts have been neglected, um, even though they're very interesting and shine a lot on rabbinic culture as well. Uh, Kirkasani, just to plug him a little bit more, uh, cites Rav Sadia Gaon extensively uh, in arguing against him. Um, so it's a very valuable source for understanding the rabbinic culture from, you could say, an object, maybe more of an objective standpoint, because he doesn't agree with them. Uh, so he feels free to criticize them. Um, 
So I started writing when I uh, left my PhD. First, I was doing some content for the Aish website. And then um, I wrote one article about Arabic bookstores in Israel and the history of Arabic books being sold here. And, uh, and I wrote that for Al Jazeera. And then they asked me if I would want to write again about the judicial reforms in March in Israel. And uh, the judicial reforms haven't ended is it like about six months later. So I'm still writing for them. And uh, one issue kind of led to another. And it's been very interesting. Um, when you write an academic article, you spend months researching and, you know, you hope somebody reads it. And you get a lot of comments from the editors, and it's a very difficult process. And when you write a journalistic article, you do very little research comparatively. And um, and so it's a lot, it's a very different, I'm still adjusting to it. Um, but there's, uh, it's been a fun process. And uh, of course, things are not quiet here. Every day in Israel, there's, you know, many things to write about. That's great. Thank you. Um, to shift gears back to our original topic, another question in the chat was, is Kisani relied on today in modern commentary or is he considered out of bounds? So I would say in um, in the culture of like scholarly uh, Jewish culture, uh, I'm thinking of folks like Saul Lieberman or uh, Louis Ginsburg, some of these old school uh, JTS scholars will uh discuss Kirkasani um more of a of an intel in an intellectual context uh he's certainly in rabbinic Judaism not viewed as an authority or one whose opinion is worth considering uh in the Karite community he's he's very much revered as one of the elders of the early generation of of Karite scholars um most of the Karite community today doesn't uh, read Arabic, so that makes it difficult to uh, utilize him. However, a uh, translation of his monumental book, it's a 1,300-page work, is uh, is almost complete in Hebrew, and, uh, and big chunks of it are being translated in English as well. Uh, so hopefully more of the of the intellectual, you could say, Jewish audience will look at him and consider some of the things he writes about. I would say that mainstream Jewish websites like Safaria or even academic websites like the Friedman Ginsburg, uh, Friedman Gniza Project or the Ma'agarim Hebrew Database don't include these texts. Um, so in a way, I would say they're mostly not looked at also because they're in Arabic, which makes it more difficult, and also because of this sort of general policy. But I think that could change. I hope it can change because I think in the realms of philosophy and, um, you know, some of the more neutral fields, a lot of his ideas, certainly in biblical interpretation, um, you know, there's not really such a polemical um, context to those arguments. So there's no reason why his work shouldn't be studied and appreciated. And uh, in fact, one of the later Geonim, Samuel ben Chofni Geon, cites Kirkasani and, and, uh, and he, he adds, um, you know, may his name be blessed or one of the things that you say for someone who's dead with respect 
And so I think that's an interesting source where uh, an interesting example where one of these Karaites was um, was viewed respectfully by the Gonim. It's the it's more common for them to be um, sort of castigated and, and defamed. Um, in the medieval period, when these things were in the more recent memory, some of these Karaite authors would be cited anonymously. Um, so that would be a way of taking their idea, but not saying that it came from the source that is, you know, viewed as problematic. Thank you. Um, another question in the chat that I'll read out loud says, I'd like to know if you have any contact with the living Karaite community. I know their main synagogue is in the old city. Have you interacted with them? Uh, thank you. They just invited me to speak uh, in a couple of weeks. So I go back and forth with uh, their rabbi. The leader of the Karaite community has a PhD from Ben Gurion University. So he's really much a scholar and he appreciates what I've been doing. Um, there are really two kinds of Karaite communities, I would say, in Israel and more broadly. There's the community from Egypt that um, emigrated to Israel with the rest of the Jewish community in Egypt. And, uh, and they have their own synagogues. And then you also have people who kind of haven't found their place in the quote unquote mainstream rabbinic Jewish community, and they've embraced some of the Karaite principles, but they have no, um, you know, living connection with the Egyptian community. Um, and so they're more independent. And you could say, you could suggest, at least from what I was arguing, that that was really the spirit of Karaism from the beginning. Um, that this whole tradition of Egyptian Karaism, these are our customs that we brought from Egypt, uh, is really, in a way, it goes against the spirit of creativity that birthed this phenomenon. Um, and so some of these Karaite Jews um, exist on WhatsApp groups and Facebook groups, and they discuss, how do I understand this verse in the Bible? Uh, there's also an active group in Israel of people who observe the new moon. One of the big differences between Karaite law and rabbinic law has to do with the determining of the calendar by the observation of the moon. And so people will observe the moon and send pictures and uh, also observe the barley, which has to do with the determination of Passover, which has to occur in the spring, i.e. the time of the barley ripening. And so uh, every year there are people who uh, tour the country, the land of Israel, to see if the barley has been ripened and whether or not to add a second month of Adar. Uh, so I would say that I identify with the spirit of the independence of the Karai community. And uh, I think it's interesting that people today continue to be inspired by uh, these debates. Uh, I also think that uh, on the particular issue of the new moon, that the observation of the new moon is a really beautiful practice and uh, adds a kind of earthy, natural element to Jewish life. Um, but, you know, I live in the community where the majority of my family are going to celebrate the holiday on, or not the majority, my entire family will celebrate the Jewish holidays according to the rabbinic calendar. Uh, and so I'll kind of go along with them. And uh, I live in Jaffa, where there is no uh, Karaite synagogue. Um, but I'm excited to meet some more members 
uh, in Ramla. Ramla is where one of the headquarters is. So I'm going to be meeting them in two weeks. Nice. Thank you. I think we have time for just one more question that came in in the chat. Why did the Dead Sea community not survive? Uh, that's a great question. I'm not really sure if scholars agree. I think that part of it has to do if you went to the terrain, if you go to the Dead Sea area, um, you would find that it's very hard to survive there. Uh, it's not such a habitable place. And so to me, I guess it's not that surprising that a community that ran away there for a retreat didn't manage to uh, maintain the community, just given how hostile. But it's a good question. And uh, if you look at uh, Kirgasani, the first chapter of his book, which is in English, anyone can look it up. It's printed in uh, by Leonard Nemoy and, uh, and there's another translation. And uh, he discusses a whole list of Jewish sects that didn't survive. Uh, so in a way, you could say the the exception to the rule is as that the rule is that most of these Jewish groups don't survive. And uh, and so the Dead Sea community is like so many other Jewish groups and uh, ideas that didn't continue. And you could argue, well, going back to the earlier question of the Judaism that we know today is really new and it has no ancestors. And so all of the forms of Judaism that used to be around are no longer around. Thank you. And thank you so much, uh, Eliyahu, for this really interesting presentation. And, and thank you all for joining us. Um, I just want to let everyone know about our next class, which will be September 7th at 1 p.m. Pacific. Um, that will be Debut Fiction and the Holocaust, When Fiction Steps in for History with Martha Antoll. So we hope that you can all join us for that as well. And um, yeah, hope you all have a great rest of your day. Thanks again. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.